All right, so there's obviously a lot to talk about with context as for King's the third (laughs) episode and second pilot of Star Trek Discovery. But I I want to start out by talking about how much I love Cadet Tilly. Oh, my God. I want her to be my friend, even though I'd probably go crazy. But, yeah, she's adorable. I think what really sold me on her was... So two things. Number one, in the shuttlecraft, when they're going over to the USS Glenn, and she basically apologizes for mean-girling Burnham. (laughs) And then at the end of the episode, when Burnham goes back into their quarters and her hair is all askew, I don't know. I just think this is a down-to-earth woman that has a very, very good amount of self-awareness and wants to be a captain, and she and Burnham are going to be best friends. And I'm down to see this happen. Oh yeah, I mean there is something very uh I, I the the one line that she has like most people don't know this about me but I'm going to be captain like just that phrasing is a is a perfect phrasing of it cuz you think she's going to you know she has all of these weird things right like she has all these allergies and she's awkward and you know she's probably much younger than everybody else I mean she is in a way a Wesley of her generation um Maybe maybe not as brilliant as Wesley, but who knows? Maybe she is. We, we don't know. We don't have enough context for her. Um, she's a lot less horrible than Wesley. Well, yeah, that is true. I, I, I did rewatch Encounter at Farpoint uh, briefly yesterday. And I say briefly because it is really bad. But uh, Wesley is particularly awful in that. Um, yeah, so, so I think both of us really enjoyed Cadet Tilly. Um, shame about the rest of the episode. Okay, well, that's interesting. I thought, I think we're getting a closer idea for what kind of a show this is going to be. I mean, this is a show that has much more, in a way, of a mythology arc than Star Trek usually does, which I thought was kind of the point of it. Um, I think that I'm really going to have to see where this goes, obviously, because I need to be... I think I need to be convinced of why we're spending so much time and energy and effort on something which doesn't happen. And and what I mean mm. by that is this weird fungi mycology transportation transporter technology. Yeah. It's it's something that could be really interesting and it could tell a very good story, but we just don't know where it's going and I don't know how I feel about it. It seems I like goofiness in Star Trek, but something about this seems like it's taking itself a little too seriously for me. Yeah, I mean, this is certainly a technology that if it really did exist and had been developed over the next hundred years or so, uh, would make the plot of Voyager not existent, for example. Um, and I mean, a lot of it really has to do with, uh, a question that we don't know, which is what is Lorca's deal, right? Like, I mean, we have the, uh, what's his name? We have the gay science guy. Um, what's his name? Stamets? Lieutenant Paul Stamets. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, we have him calling Lorca a warmonger at one point, right? And, you know, saying, oh, this technology is going to be used for the war and all of this, which, you know, and all, and, uh, Burnham's, Bur- it, it's, 
It's Rick Berman, but Michael Burnham. That is confusing the fuck out of me. Um, Rick Berman has nothing to do with Star Trek Discovery. <laughs> Put Rick Berman out of your mind, at least until November when we get back to Star Trek Voyager. Okay. Um, you know, Burnham takes this evidence and she believes that some kind of biological weapon is uh, going to be used. And, of course, Lurk is all, no, 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 it's transportation. And she seems to buy that. But at the end... Um, you have they have this monster that you know attacked the ship in captivity, which is a little more, you know. My my initial thought was okay, you know, transportation accident. They accidentally picked something up from another planet and it wrecked havoc. But obviously, there is some kind of deeper agenda. We don't know what his agenda is. If it turns out, for example, that no, Lorca really is creating a weapon using this stuff, and it's not to be used for technology, and he's done some very elaborate, you know, ruse to. Uh, to, to, to Burnham on this, then, okay, that explains why we don't have this technology a hundred years later, but at the same time, I really don't know if we feel comfortable with a Star Trek show in which the main captain has developed a biological weapon. So obviously, again, we, I mean, we were talking a little offline about this, you know, we haven't really dealt with this kind of speculation in a show before, and it's, it's an interesting feeling, I will say. Um, yeah, I, I think that what I am having a little bit of pause about is you're right. Like, we don't know what the deal with Captain <laughs> Lorca is. He he seems a little off in, in a way that all of the main characters seem a little off, to yeah. be honest. I mean, Cadet Tilly is off. Lieutenant Stamets is off. Saru is definitely off. Michael Burnham is very off. They're they're all a little off. They're all a little left of center, which is which is fine. And I think that's an interesting approach to develop a, a you know a pre TOS show. You know, one of the things I was thinking about while watching this episode is that I, I think that it's going to be a little difficult for people that have watched a lot of eighties and nineties Star Trek mm. to to get into because. These people are not acting like the the Federation Starfleet personnel of the 24th century, right? Yeah. Those were v- very, very different people. I mean, I think that you see that very clearly in this episode where they're they're kind of baiting Burnham. They're they're calling her mutineer. They are letting her be attacked by you know the 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 crew the the other prisoners in that opening scene. And so, to me, I look at this and I say, all right, well. That's not exactly the Star Trek that I know best, but I think that's I, I can see that being consistent with with a TOS era type of of humanity and type of Starfleet and type of Federation. Uh, but you're right; like I don't know what the deal with Captain Lorca is, and I don't know what we're really supposed to take away from this. I I I worry that you know Star Trek is always sort of. I'll think of something like Devil in the Dark, for example, right? Which was kind of your classic monster story turned on its head. And that was a very, very key development in how Star Trek was going to look at the world, look at the universe, and how people were going to look at Star Trek. And, you know, what we get in the third episode of Star Trek Discovery, the the first Star Trek show in, well, really uh, 16 years, because Star Trek Enterprise started in 2001, is essentially aliens and i guess that's okay i mean the franchise is not outside of the realm of possibility of doing that sort of thing the the last voyager episode we covered two weeks ago before we started doing star trek discovery was macrocosm which is essentially 
Voyager's riff on on the Alien franchise. But but for for the third episode of the first new Star Trek show in 16 years, that needs to establish what Star Trek is to a new generation and a new audience. I don't know how I feel about this episode being the thing that is doing that. I mean, macrocosm, we even said it like it almost hilariously goes out of its way to not get anybody permanently damaged by this. Again, part of that is, you know, the 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 part part of that is a simple side effect of having a very limited crew on Voyager, but it's not a show that's going to kill off a bunch of people. And here we have a very, you know, this is probably one of the most... I mean, this is almost up there with that really sour note at the end of season one of Next Generation where they explode the, the head with the worm in it. Um, <laughs> you know, this was – this is not very family-friendly, is it? Um, or or sort of the transporter accident in the motion picture. For instance, yeah, right? and, you know, the, these are uh, – and maybe that is – I mean, that's obviously a very deliberate tone, but I don't know. There is – I mean, with the very opening scene of the series where that where they're in that like desert planet with those little creatures and the well and stuff, I mean, this wants to be a more creaturey show. I don't have a problem with creature shows, uh, but I also it's not necessarily what we watch Star Trek for, and I hope they don't lean on it too much, if you know what I mean. No, I do know what you mean. I I think that one of the one of the major things about the Star Trek franchise in general is that you know part of the reason why it was so well written is that it 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 had to be. You know, they they didn't have a budget yeah. to to pull off a lot of the stuff that Star Trek Discovery is is pulling off, and so you know you you had to sort of you had to fill that in with with writing and with performance. I'm not saying that Star Trek Discovery is necessarily falling down on on the performances at least i i think that everyone is that's been cast yeah. on the show so far is, is doing an excellent job uh, you know i have some some minor quibbles here and there but overall I, I think it's well done i i don't know where the story is going so i can't really speak to the quality of the writing as much you know i, I definitely think there was a little bit of ropey dialogue in the first episode specifically and it was a little expository but you know it's also a pilot i don't know that you can get really get away yeah. with that i think that now that we now that we've met most are all of the main characters. Well, not all of them, because we still have um, a couple of other characters that we haven't met yet. There's the, I forget the name of the guy, but I think he's supposed to be a tactical officer or something. Okay. He's in the show, and there's a couple other people we haven't met yet. That I, I, I'm starting to see the shape of it a little bit. I think that what I'm seeing is, you know, okay, let's track this. It's been six months since the start of the of the war. This is ostensibly i think the first time that the federation and the klingon empire have gone to hot war status starfleet is freaking out starfleet is taking this which which i think also has shades of of star trek to the wrath of khan in it right with this mm. whole thing about you know them stealing the genesis device and starfleet and and uh you know kirk's son having issues with starfleet coming in and 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 taking the the, the genesis device that there is this kind of through line in this era of Star Trek, in this era of the Federation of scientists, even ones that are in Starfleet like Stamets, being a little scared, being a little resentful yeah. of Starfleet command coming in and taking their research and turning it into whatever they're turning it into. I, I think that 
Stamets' line about Lorca being a warmonger is is less to do with the objective reality of what Lorca yeah. is doing, because honestly, I don't think Stamets has much idea about what Lorca is doing. I think it has more to do with the fact, of course, that Stamets doesn't want to be on Discovery and that he was co-opted into this by Lorca. Yeah, so yeah. So he yeah. thinks that's, it's more of like, you know, he's calling him a warmonger because of that reason. Of course. But, at, you know, yeah, it, the show is going out of its way to make us distrust Lorca, I guess. And that's a weird look for the show. Uh, I'm not, you know, I, I think I tended to like this episode a little more than you did. I mean, this felt like... Again, this felt like a real episode as opposed to, you know, just the prologue of the first two. Um, We're actually getting to learn characters' names. You know, we're actually getting to meet people who are going to be our actual cast now. And, you know, I liked that. I like that, you know, we're on the ship, we're seeing it and those kind of things. But, you know, it's... Let me put it this way. I mean, you know, a friend of mine was saying like, oh, I don't I wonder if Jason Isaacs is going to be past the first season. You know, it might just, you know, it may be like a what's his name from Game of Thrones and, you know, season one. Like, is he going to get killed or, you know, for example, could he be revealed to actually be doing something untoward on the ship? I don't know. Again, this is it probably won't because this is a Star Trek show. But at the same time, I'm worried. I we can ask the question and it's weird that we can ask the question. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that, that part, part of what I'm thinking is that the show may be going down a road of, of having us mistrust Lorca because Lorca is not the main character yeah. of the show. You know, he's not, he's not the main protagonist for the first time in a Star Trek show. Uh, Michael Burnham is. Yeah. And so we kind of need Michael Burnham to, we kind of to identify with Michael Burnham, to identify with a character that in in the first two episodes of the series mutineered and got her captain killed, essentially, I, you know, that's not someone we really necessarily yeah. have been trained by Star Trek to identify with. This is someone like, you know, the, the cadets in the first duty, for instance. Right. Or something like that. Or this is a drumhead situation. Yeah. This is not a good situation. These are, you know, and then so she gets into the 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 ship and now we have to reestablish who she is we have to i guess the show is trying to convince us that michael burnham is going to do great things i i i guess i believe it but where is captain Lorca going i i don't know and i think it's the part of the episode that that doesn't work for me yeah i mean i'm thinking about uh times we've seen like we have seen for example captain picard from outside in a couple of ways in uh lower decks in which he is being very you know, taciturn, and he's not telling people. And you know, from the perspective of the of the kids in that episode, yeah, sure, he's being mysterious. But we all know because we have seen you know six seasons of him at that point, or however many. You know that Picard is good, right? That he's always good aligned, and that you know there are reasons for this and all of that. Um, also, at the beginning of uh, Deep Space Nine, Cisco and Cisco obviously has a problem with him. Um, Picard is is a little colder towards Cisco than he is towards his bridge crew, but he would be. And by the end, you know, Cisco does admit, like, yeah, I, I, I am going to be here. You're right. And, you know, that's the end of Picard on that episode. So there are some elements of that. I mean, Lorca is playing things very close to the vest because, I mean, I, I can see, you know, why somebody running a black ops ship in a time of war is 
going to keep a lot of secrets, especially to somebody who, who mutinied, and he hasn't. I mean, there is a degree of mutual distrust between the two. We've always said that on Star Trek, the characters know that they can at least trust each other if they're on the same ship. Um, I mean, she's similar to Tom Paris in some ways, but we never really... Tom Paris was never as much of a wild card. There was a little bit in maybe the first season about, you know, can Tom pa- Paris get over his shit and become, you know, a good pi- the good pilot and, you know, Starfleet officer that he's destined to be, but we have no doubt that he's going to be. Yeah, yeah. And I I don't know that I have a real doubt no. that Michael Burnham is going to turn out to to be a good person as well, of course. but I, I th- well, there's I think two things I want to say about about Captain Lork and then we can move on to something else, which is that the the first thing is I I I worry about where Captain Lorca is going, not necessarily because of what the show has told us about him so far, because it really hasn't told us much. Um, it, it's really that last scene where he's in what appears to be a den of horrors. Yeah, and I I don't necessarily worry about that because you know, what what is happening all throughout the episode context, right? We we don't have the context for that, and so we don't know what's going on. But that scene hues very closely to the sort of mis- mysterious drawing out that a lot of serialized yeah. television does. That makes me a little nervous because if Star Trek Discovery doesn't have a good reason for doing that, and if it's only doing it because that's how you make serialized television... That is going to be worrisome to me. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, this is, you know, context is for kings, but we really do have to take things in the context of the time. It is a darker, it is a darker Star Trek show for a very t- dark time in history, and television is in a dark place. I would like, I, I wish this would be a series which would go to refute that kind of style of storytelling. In a way. Yeah, I, I, you know, maybe it will. I don't hmm. know. I mean, I don't, again, I don't think we have enough context for that. I think if, you know, hopefully once we look back at the whole 15 episode first season of Star Trek Discovery, we can see the shape of it and we can say, okay, you know, where we were in episode three was unfounded or whatever. Um, I, I don't know. I, you know, it's, it's hard to say at this point. I also think that it's probably time to mention my, my least favorite uh, Star Trek Discovery fan theory. Okay. Which I, I wasn't even going to bring up, but I, I think it's somewhat relevant, which is that um, there was a theory floating around based on the Discovery's registry number being NCC 1031, mm-hmm. that this was going to deal somehow with Section 31. Oh, no. I can uh, see I where ho- they would go I hope with not. that. Oh, oh. I have heard that Bri- people that are Brian Fuller super fans say that he just really likes Halloween. So And yeah, it could be that. Like that, it could just be that. And this, I, I really hope the Section 31 thing, it's not true. I, I don't want to see Section 31 <laughs> again, especially after what they did with Star Trek Into Darkness. But, you know, well, you can find out about Star Trek Into Darkness in a few years. So what do you make of, we, we touched briefly on the reveal of the mycology transport thing. And taking it at face value right now, it seems okay to me. I don't know where it's going, but I don't. I don't feel. I don't feel bad about it. 
I mean, it's the kind of goofy thing that, you know, Star Trek does. It's no, it, You mentioned the Genesis device. It's no less weird than the Genesis device or dilithium or, you know, the caretaker beam or, I mean, it, it, it is of a piece with all of the weird shit we have seen in Star Trek so far. I don't have any problems with it. Um, I think as, I mean, one of the things about Star Trek that I think we love about it is that sense of wonder and awe that just traveling through space gives. And I think the scene in which he's, you know, zapping her around is an attempt to bring that sense of wonder and awe, and it's one that I think works. Uh, I mean, there were a few, you know, the reveal of Discovery at the beginning was a nice scene of that, um... You know, that was stuff that was kind of missing from the pilot uh, due to just the chaos of everything that was happening. Um, and I like that. I like that, you know, there there is a – I would like the show to lean on the sense of tragedy in a way because you have a th- – you have a device that could be used, uh, you know, certainly what Stamets and his research partner want to want it to be. Uh, you have a device which be, could be used to see the wonders of the galaxy at any time. I mean, that's there was what was the um, season one episode of Voyager with the, you know, the hedonistic planet that had that. I mean, that's very similar to that. Um, and yet it's being, you know, because we are in a time of war, it's due to just, you know, some Klingon asshole deciding that it's time to get to war. And, you know, Michael Burnham may or may, or may not have, you know, pushed it a little further into hot war. Um, this technology has to be used for war. And, you know, there is a sadness to that. Uh, and I would like the show to, again, lean heavily into that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I'm with you because that's the one thing that... Uh, you know, again, I, I just I, we just don't have enough information, enough context to know where this is going. And I, I think in, in, in some senses, placing the, the, the first season storyline of the first new Star Trek series in a long time uh, as a war story is it's a little it's a little ballsy. I'll say that. Well, you know, I, I, yeah. do, <laughs> I don't know how I feel about it, but we'll have to see where it goes. Oh. And and I do I do wonder too like you know the elephant in the room of course is that this was Brian Fuller's idea and he was obviously not there to to see it through to completion so mm. what was going through his head when he wanted to do this we don't know I mean I've Hopefully I, it will go somewhere good I mean I looked at the you know episode online and it said you know story by Brian Fuller so obviously I mean it's likely he's outlined the you know the majority of the season and you know, probably the big plot points and, you know, obviously that some of it was retooled or whatever, but uh, I, I would assume it would be at least parallel to what his original conception was. Um, I guess one of the questions that I want to be asking myself through this, again, it's a little too early, but uh, in the original series, the Federation is America and Dad and it's always right, right? Like ultimately, you know, there are good values and they're going to prevail because, you know, right always prevails. Uh, Next Generation says that, you know, things aren't quite so monocultural as that, particularly in America. And, you know, but we can take the take the larger view of that. We can, you know, synthesize everybody's, you know, views. And ultimately there is going to be some core values that everybody shares and that, you know, that's what the right thing is going to be. Uh, Deep Space Nine sees views outside of that. And, uh, you know, 
some, you know, the Federation view may be limited. The Federation view may not always be the right thing, and the Federation view may have to change in order to better accommodate something else because it's not alone in the world, and you know, it's not the big superpower it might once have been. So I guess I wonder what is the Federation meaning in this, and. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is very easy to look at the world and to see the rise of fascism in, you know, in America, in, in Europe and all of that. And, you know, yeah, I mean, look at what was going on in Catalonia. Oh, today. my God. <laughs> um, there are a lot of fucked up things. And yes, that has been the case in the world at all times. But uh, the, there is a certain awareness and cultural context, which is for kings, that we are have to deal with Uh that the show is coming into and yeah i think for the feder i think it's while it is sad that the federation might be a bit fucked up in this well the world is a bit fucked up right now and you know maybe there will be something which pulls it back i mean i i i think if this is truly a star trek show you know those good values will pull everybody back from the brink and will come to you know a Solution that does not end in, you know, conflagration for everybody, but, you know, we still need to address that things are not really good right now. Yeah, I, I think so, because, you know, what that makes me think of is is really two things. You know, number one, of course, is, uh, uh, you know, I think, I don't know that we said this in the last episode, but I think this has certainly been something floating through a lot of the commentary on, on Star Trek Discovery so far. Which I just want to say, I haven't really read anything online about it. I'm kind of going in just, you know, just the show. Yeah, sure. Um, it, you know, is that the sort of idea of Tekovma and his house and, and the Klingons in general kind of standing in for, for Trumpism, essentially? Mm. And and then, okay, so you ask, what is the role for the Federation here? Well, the role for the Federation is, is going to be the role of the resistance, in a sense, and, mm-hmm. and the role of, of goodness and, and, and morality and rightness triumphing over uh, bigotry and evil and fascism. So so that's kind of, yeah. is, is that where it's going to go? I don't know. Well, it could be a facile reading. I, but, I have to say that's simplistic because Trumpism does not come from outside America. Trumpism comes from within America. You know, to say that... You know, it is very difficult well, to say that Trump is un-American. Trump is a Klingon. Trump is something else. No, Trump is about as fucking American as you can get, and that's the problem. Well, I, I think that in terms of Star Trek, though, I mean, yeah. the Federation very much does believe in the the value of all species and the value of all life, and so sure. those kind of divisions are artificial. So that's how I would answer that challenge. Now, of okay. course, we also are talking about a Star Trek show, and they have to have yeah. an external force that's driving the plot, or else it doesn't have a, the TV show doesn't exist. And I think the other the other part of this is that this is kind of stepping back, and I'm sort of starting to think about how to how to stitch this. I don't want to say version of the Federation, but Mm. it is. I mean, it's a different production team and they're putting their own stamp on it. That if you think about the the real fact of the matter that we don't have a lot of information for what the first hundred years of the Federation were like. You know, we we know that the Federation was founded in 2161. We we saw the very, very, very early beginnings of that in Star Trek Enterprise. Okay, so that's the era that that took. So this is about almost 100 years after Enterprise? Uh, I believe it's, yeah, it's like a hundred years almost exactly. 
Um, uh, I think uh, I think Star I think Star Trek Enterprise started in twenty two fifty one, so that would have or twenty one fifty one, so that would have been ten years before the founding of the Federation. Okay, this is twenty two fifty six, I think, mm-hmm. so almost a hundred years. Um, but we don't know a lot about what what the the first hundred years of the Federation were like, and I think that you see that in a couple of lines here where. There, what I've noticed so far is that there's a lot of there's a lot of lip service being paid to the ideals of the Federation, to the ideals of exploration, scientific inquiry, you know, peace, all that kind of stuff. And Lorica even says that very explicitly in this episode when, you know, I, I didn't write the exact line down, but he he says something to Burnham in their first meeting, like, oh, you know, well, we got rid of war, poverty, famine, yeah, uh, but you know, you're doing a good job of bringing them all back, right? And I think that what I what I'm viewing Star Trek Discovery as and I'll be curious to see if this is where it ends up going is maybe this is the story of the Federation mm. going through its first real test of those of its commitment to maintaining those ideals because so far as we know they haven't really engaged in a war with the Klingons they did have a very brief war with the Romulans but that never really tested them that in fact probably led to the creation of the Federation so that's going to be seen as some one of their founding uh founding documents in a way so maybe the story of Star Trek Discovery is the Federation you know, sort of recommitting itself yeah. in a time of great strife and a time of great, um, uh, uh, you know, challenge to to coming out on the other side of that more themselves. That might be the optimistic reading. That might be the Trekkie reading of this. But that's kind of where I hope they're going. Uh, yeah, actually, this is, you know, to side note a second. So there is a reference to the Geneva Conventions of 1928 and 2155. So that would be within the run of Enterprise then, if you say it begins mm-hmm. in. Uh, do we deal with that? Um, I, I don't know. I'm just I don't curious. want to say for sure. Okay. I, I'm, I'm, I'm much less versed in Enterprise okay. than I am in any other Star Trek show. I wasn't sure if that was, you know, the eugenics wars or something like that. Um, but anyway. Okay. No. No, it wasn't the eugenics wars. They were in the 1990s. Yeah, and that's yeah, yeah. Been pretty much expunged from that timeline of Star Trek. <laughs> oh God, what if the show deals with the eugenics wars again? Um, let's not let's not tempt fate. Um, <laughs> um, well, there's uh, so a couple other things to to talk about. I think. I mean, we probably could talk just about this episode for an hour, but you know, I, I think that uh, the discovery, the actual ship, right? Like, it's fine. I like it. It looks good. I I don't know how different it actually looks from the Shenzhou. I mean, I don't think the bridge looks that different. I don't think the corridors look that different. They're probably using the same sets, honestly. Um, I mean, and- there was that half line that she makes when she's on the uh, 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 the Glen, where she's like, "Oh, Starfleet ships are all the same." You know, I I know the layout of this, and you know that was, you know, that's partially a coy, like, uh, "Yeah, we're we're reusing the sets for all of this," but. You know, it does kind of make sense there would be some kind of prefabness to it, especially at this point in time. Sure. But I think that what what uh, interested me the most about it was that, and, and who knows if this is true, but that one of the um, convicts says that 
that the Discovery is a new ship, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting because it has a, a much earlier registry number than the USS Enterprise, right? Like the Discovery is NCC 1031. The, the USS Enterprise is, is 1701. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Constitution class starships were um, around for at least 10 years before Discovery was. So I'm not sure what that indicates or what that means or if that means anything at all. But I just think it's a little interesting. I assumed it was something like a star date where they just pick a number and they just kind of run with it. And, you know, if you want to square the circle of where everything goes, have fun. But, you know, I really don't want to hang out with you. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll find somebody else to discuss. Oh. And then I think the other thing is, is Saru. You know, the show yeah. is setting him up for some kind of storyline. And, and I don't know where they're going with him, but... I, I think that his scenes with Burnham are probably the most Trekkian of any of the scenes in these yeah. first three episodes. They are two people who respect each other very much, who at least at one point trusted each other very much. And Saru is certainly grieving the fact that he has lost his inability to trust Michael, uh, and he laments that there was that point where they were very close and she made this, you know, she made this one, would you call it a mistake? Would you call it a, you know, it's such an ambiguous and again, fucked up situation that you can't really, he doesn't even know how to label it. But at the same time, you know, he is somebody who is trained to, you know, have spider senses tingling anytime there's a hint of danger. And now, Michael is danger. She was very dangerous at one day. Yeah, because I think I, the line that sticks out to me is when Saru said, you know, you you were a fantastic yeah. Starfleet officer until you weren't. Yeah. Yeah, and he has another line like, yeah, until up, up until she mutinied, she was an excellent officer. Yeah, the, um, I mean, there is that one, you know, there are definitely people that you have, you know, a, an extraordinary relationship of trust and then just something happens that is just so fucked up and maybe even out of character and maybe even not them, but still happened and still fucked things up and still is a trauma that it is such a hard thing to deal with. You know, how do you deal with that person again? And, you know, I I, I like that they are both being very open about it. I like that there is enough of a foundation of trust that they kind of are able to talk about their problems. You know, that, that is a nice thing. Yeah, no, I think so. And, and, and to my mind, I mean, so far, honestly, I I think Saru is, is really the the standout character for me. Like I'm, I'm really interested to find out more about him. I, I think that, you know, he's written so ambiguously right now and with a lot of different layers. And, you know, we don't really know w- what's going on with him. And but I don't think that there's any sort of ulterior motive no. there like there is with Lorca. You know, the show is not setting up Saru to have some sort of dark secret. And OK, in episode eight, if he's revealed to have a dark secret, I'm going to look really dumb. But I I don't know. I just I like the character. He seems to slot in very easily with a lot of other uh you know, sort of alien outsider characters that we've had over Star Trek in his 50-year history. Yeah, and also, you know, it's not incidental that he's already become first officer now. So, you know, this is a federation that doesn't give a shit about that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the last thing I want to mention, and, and you know, if there's anything else you want to talk about, but uh, I, I think we would be remiss, and I, I don't know that we're going to continue to do this because there's a lot of little moments and Easter eggs yeah. and stuff in these episodes that tie back to, to previous Star Trek iterations, but 
they they went there already. They they mentioned Amanda. And yeah. They mentioned Spock, not by name, but they did. So is that? I mean, I I, I I'm assuming that they're setting up some sort of possible appearance of Amanda and Spock in the future. But we're just going to have to wait and see how that goes. <laughs> Winona Ryder and Zach Quinto. Maybe <laughs> I don't know. Um, I don't know. It's interesting that Alice in Wonderland is the book that's used here because you know we've had. For example, you know, Moby Dick has been a big thing and Shakespeare has been a big thing. But um, I don't know. Alice is a slightly unusual, again, particularly for a Vulcan. Um, and it makes complete sense that Amanda would be have that be that. Um, it's it's apparently unusual to see an actual book in this day and age in in Star Trek. Um, because of, you know, Tilly's reaction is like, oh, an actual book when, you know, we've seen kirk reading books everywhere and picard reading books all the time so you know is the suggestion that they're coming back in vogue now i i don't know i that actually stuck out to me yeah. too I, I if i remember correctly we didn't really ever see many books or any books on the on the enterprise in the original series um mm. i think kirk reading books was more of a movies thing fair enough um and also replicators don't exist yet so it's probably more difficult to get books out there yeah, yeah. kind of dead weight so I, I just look at it that way, maybe. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's not like, you know, and I could talk about, like, why is there a triple on the ship? Or, you know, is site-to-site transport really a thing in this era? We haven't really seen that before, but, you know. Oh, God, you're becoming a cannon hound. I know. It's horrible. What are we supposed to make of Captain Lorca having a bunch of fortune cookies on his desk? Are we supposed to read anything into that? <laughs> I mean, I was waiting for her to open up a cookie and for it to be a very uh, on-the-nose thing, and I'm glad they didn't. Um, yeah, he has this line like, oh, you know, 100 years ago my family made these or something like that. I don't it's know. A, it's a box of possible futures. <gasps> Oh, what if so, it, wait, it, it's all the same fortune and it's blank because you have to write your own fortune? <laughs> well, I lied. I think the last thing I'll mention then is, uh, you know, one of the things that I've always said on this podcast ever since we started doing it uh, over five years ago uh, was one of the things that I, I, I think that people need to appreciate and love about Star Trek to, to really get into it is its goofiness. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just got to say, the shushing Klingon. Yeah. <laughs> that was that was good stuff. I I liked that. I laughed a lot more in this episode. Again, a lot mostly with uh Tilly because she's wonderful, but you know, last week I was worried that the humor wouldn't be there and it is back on here. So, you know, I guess it was again, the prologue was a weird prologue maybe. I I think it was. Yeah. I mean, the prologue was setting up the war. Now mm-hmm. we're in the war. This appears to be a very personal story about Michael Burnham's redemption that just happens to be tied up in an intergalactic conflict and also maybe one of the most important scientific yeah. discoveries of all time, but not really because we never hear about it again well, after this. So They better give a damn good reason, yeah. They've got they've got uh, uh, 12 episodes left to wrap this up, so they, they better get moving. That's all i got to say okay. about it. Uh, one just little hope, secret hope that I had, which, you know, didn't end up, um, 
you mentioned that they, you know, Major Barrett had recording her recorded her patterns or something like that. I was hoping that when they get to Discovery, at, which is a brand new ship, that it would be her voice, and you know that it would be like, okay, you know, we had another computer on the and that wasn't the case. So I don't like the new computer as much, but it is you know new. So it is what it is. Yeah, yeah. Well. You know, the, the U.S. Saint-Joe was old, and they just could not get the iOS updates after a while. Mm-hmm. So that's a shame. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that'll do it for Context is for Kings. If you have any thoughts on this episode, please leave a comment on the post at trekaboutshow.com. You can check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash trekaboutshow. This podcast is listener-supported. We are podcasting. It is currently uh, 10 13 p.m. on Sunday night on the East Coast. This is how dedicated we are to the show. If you are as dedicated to the show as we are, you should give us some money. Patreon.com slash truckaboutshow. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we are there. Truckaboutshow is our username in all those places. And as always, please leave us a positive iTunes review. And we have a new one, Richard. Oh my God. Which we actually got last week, but I neglected to check. So I'm sorry. But this is being read much more quickly than normal because yeah. normally we record weeks ahead of time. So we'll go with that. Uh, this review comes to us from Makeshift Python, who says, The first Star Trek podcast I've subscribed to and exactly the kind of podcast <gasps> I enjoy listening to. Love the dynamic with one host being a fan and another being new to the shows, which brings two unique perspectives to start interesting and fun conversations. I started with the Voyager episodes and was bummed to find out that it's been put on hiatus because I'm liking their comments on it so far, but there's four previous Trek shows they've also covered, so I'm just getting into those. <laughs> well, you know, I just will say thank you very much for that review, Makeshift Python. And uh, Star Trek Voyager is on hiatus briefly, uh, but it will be back relatively soon. Yeah, a month you know, we, and a half. We, we, yeah, I mean, we'll be back in November, so don't uh, don't disappear too long. We'll be gone till November. We'll be gone till November. Remember that song? Yeah. I don't, but... It was uh, Wyclef Jean of the Fugees. Oh, yeah, him. I wonder if he's watching Star Trek Discovery. (laughs) I hope so. I hope everybody's watching it. All right. Well, next week, we are going to be continuing Star Trek Discovery. We're going to be talking about episode four. And uh, excuse me for a second. This is called The Butcher's Knife cares not for the lamb's cry oh god i love the titles they're so pretentious i love it (laughs) finally a star trek show for the pretentious literary nerd in all of us